The following lecture was delivered at the 7th Annual National Jewish Retreat, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture and encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Mrs. Rachel Holtzkenner is the co-director of Chabad of Las Olas here in Fort Lauderdale. She holds a Master of Science degree in Brain Research Education and a popular lecturer on the topics of Kabbalah and feminism. She will now present a lecture entitled Allure and Demure. Back in the early 19th century, there was a Jewish man who worked very hard as a peddler to make a living. And he would journey for several weeks away from his family and come home to provide means for his children. At this point in his life, his daughter was of marriageable age, and he was especially persistent in doing some business dealing so that he could have money for a dowry to marry her off. And this young man had gone and collected a nice sum of money, 130 rubles, and was on his way back home. And on the way, he stopped at a village to rest his weary head and find the local shul, shtibel, to pray. He gets to the shul and puts his baggage down, his little bag that he was carrying, and checks his belongings to make sure everything is intact. Now, in his sack, he had a little sachet that he used to store the money. And he was kind of feeling around for the little sachet of money, and he couldn't find it. So he took everything out, and he laid everything flat, and tried to make sure that he wasn't overlooking any place in his sack, but no, the money was gone. It had fallen out, someone had stolen it, it was gone. And uh, he was in the shoal, and services were about to start, but he was in a big panic because he had just invested a lot of time and effort to collecting this money, saving this money, and he really needed it. His family needed it, and especially it was uh, security for him that he would be able to marry off his daughter. And people were noticing that he was anxious, and they were asking him what was wrong, and instead of praying, there was a commotion because everyone was trying to help him find it and look through all of his things and help him remember where he saw it last. And he was hyperventilating this man that had uh, lost his money. And everybody was, didn't know what to do to help him. There was one man in the shul whose name was Zusha. And Zusha asked him, I think I may have spotted your sachet of money um, while I was on the way to synagogue today. I think I saw it. It was buried under the bushes. Tell me, describe to me what it looked like, because I didn't see it well, and let me go back and check. So he said to him, this is what it looked like. It was kind of a red piece of cloth that I had tied with a rope, and in it was 130 rubles, and he named to him exactly the, the currency and the, the way the money was divided. And uh, this man, Zusha, said, let me go and double check and see if that was yours. Well, he goes, and about an hour later, he comes back and he says, yes, I think I found what you were looking for. And he gives him 
the money. And everybody is relieved and relaxed and really happy. You know that happiness when you find something that you lost. Well, just as everybody is kind of settling down, Zusha turns to this man and says to him, but you know, my friend, you owe me half of the money. Why do I owe you half of the money? A finder's fee. I found the money, and therefore I deserve half of it, at least. Well, everybody's saying to him, what do you mean? You don't deserve half of the money just because you found it. Finding something is just a good thing to do, a good Samaritan. It's a mitzvah. It's called Hashavat Aveda, returning something that was lost. But Zusha's insistent. I owe you, you know, you owe me half of the money that I gave you. And all the people in the shul and the scholars were saying, we've never seen such a such a thing, it doesn't say anywhere in the Talmud that someone who finds money is entitled to a finder's fee, but Zusha's insistent and so they decide to go to the town rabbi. And he was at home, he had prayed in, earlier that day, so he was at home and they came to him and they said to him, <clears throat> they presented the case. This man Zusha found the money and how now he wants a half, he wants half of the money. Oh, the rabbi listens to both sides. Zusha saying, if, you know, if I didn't find the money, he wouldn't have had any money. Now at least he is going to get half of the money. And uh, the man's saying, well, it's true, he found the money, but it's my money. And he did something that I appreciate, but he doesn't deserve half of the money. And the rabbi listens and says, yes, Zusha, you're not entitled to any of the money. And uh, he tells the gentleman who lost the money, it's all yours. And that was the end. Well, the rabbi was a little perturbed by this fellow Zusha and the show that he had made about wanting half of the finder's fee. And he knew that this man Zusha was a student of the famous Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement. And a few months later, he was visiting the Baal Shem Tov. And uh, he said, I'm sorry, not the Baal Shem Tov, the Maggid of Mezrich, who was the Baal Shem Tov student. He was visiting the Maggid of Mezrich. He happened to pass through Mezrich, and he stopped by to visit the Maggid, and he was conversing with him. And one of the topics that he brought up was Zusha. And the rabbi of the town said to him, you know, you have a student, his name is Zusha. He did something that I was very unimpressed by. And he told him the story about how he wanted a, fi a finder's fee. And the Maggid said, oh, you have totally misread the situation. That man, Zusha, he didn't find the money. That was his money. He put together that money and replicated the money that was lost. And he put it in the same kind of piece of red cloth and tried to tie it in a similar way. He did a tremendous act of kindness, of charity. Well, the rabbi was taken aback. He said, well, if that's the case, then my question is even stronger. Why would he want half of the money that he was donating uh, to this desperate man as charity? And the Maggid said, aha, I'll explain to you. This Zusha, not only is he a very kind person, but he also is a very humble person. And when he saw that everybody was lauding him for finding the money and in fact he knew that he was really donating the money to this man 
he started to uh, think boastful thoughts. You know, I'm so wonderful, and everybody else thinks I'm so wonderful. I'm the hero. And he didn't like that. Yes, he was doing a mitzvah, but he didn't like all the glory that was going to come with it. It's kind of like a trade-off. I'm going to do a great thing, but then I'm going to become more arrogant. So is it worth being a hero if I'm going to be thinking that I'm superior to other people in my own mind? Because God could hear the thoughts in my mind. And uh, he wanted to find a way to mitigate the effect of his heroism. And what he did was set himself up in a bad light. So by asking for the finder's fee, he was no longer the hero. It was a demerit. And the focus was shifted. Instead of everybody thinking, oh, Zusha found the money, people were now thinking, yeah, he found the money, but he's also so greedy because he wants half of the money. And now the rabbi understood. And a few, uh, a few weeks later, the original sash of money was found to confirm that, yes, Zusha did donate that money of his own, and he didn't find the money. Today we're going to talk about allure and demure, modesty in the 21st century. And modesty is uh, perhaps a topic that's not so popular. In fact, I don't know, I have a Facebook account and I see that people are willing to expose a lot of private things on Facebook. Private pictures, private uh, events that are going on in their lives, private things about their relationship. The one thing that people are always very modest about is their assets. That's something that nobody's putting on Facebook. So their 401k or their investments, their hedge funds, how much their house is worth, small savings accounts that they have stashed away, that's something that, that we are modest about. But aside from money, what are we really modest about? And really, what is the value in modesty? <clears throat> Especially when it comes to women and the way women dress, modesty is very often associated with Islamic fundamentalism, you know, you kind of have the picture of women that are dressed and covered from head to toe and we interpret them to be very repressed and mm, that's not something that I want. Well, <clears throat> we can write it off as keeping appropriate boundaries between men and women and preventing infidelity. So we could say that women are meant to dress modestly so that men won't be attracted to them and we won't violate the boundaries of marriage. Okay, but then the question is, why is the onus put on the woman? Maybe the Torah should advocate men wearing blindfolds when they walk in the streets. Do we need to uh, be hot in the summer by covering up just so that a man won't have a desire to have a relationship with me if I'm not his spouse. So, today we're going to look at modesty, and, and, and by the way, I'm not saying that keeping appropriate boundaries is not a very important part of modesty, because it is, but it's not the entire gamut of modesty. I want to look at modesty from a, perhaps a different perspective today, and to begin with, you know, I was just at the Museum of Natural History last week, 
And one of the people that they have featured is a woman named Margaret Mead. She was a very famous anthropologist, and she did wonderful work looking at child rearing across global spectrum and looking at different cultures. And I was watching this video that they had displayed of her and things that she said, and one of her adages, one of the things that she said, and I'm not going to quote verbatim, but this is kind of like what she said. She said, don't bring your cultural baggage into your exploration of another culture. Because we all come with cultural baggage. So we have a lens through which we see other things. So I'm looking at, for example, a display of Native American clothing and ceremonies. So I have my own interpretation of it based on my Western lens, the, West, the lens of Western civilization. So I can't really get it from their perspective unless I first divest myself from my cultural baggage. So what is some of our cultural baggage? And these are messages that we we're bombarded with all the time, whether we make a conscious choice to adapt the messages of Western civilization or not, we kind of, through media and television, this is something we absorb. And one of the tenets of Western civilization is that exposure equals success. The more something is exposed, the more, val the more perceived value there is. So Coca-Cola, everybody knows Coca-Cola, spends two and a half billion dollars a year on advertising. Because it's not just enough that everybody knows about Coca-Cola. You have to be seeing Coca-Cola all the time, on the Olympics, during the Olympics, on billboards. It has to be constant exposure. There needs to be concert exposure for me to evaluate it with something that is important to me. A professor in university needs to publish work in order to gain tenure. Well, there's certain value in publishing just for the sake of publishing, but, uh, but there's also that sense of you need to be out there. You need to be famous for us to value you. In contrast, the Torah seems to value privacy. If you look on your follow me in your source sheets here, if you look to page two, on the bottom, here you have the code of Jewish law. I'm just going to read it in English. It says, since one is obligated to stand in awe of his creator at all times, he should be modest in everything he does. This is the beginning of the code of Jewish law. For modesty and bashfulness lead to subservience before God. So modesty and bashfulness are the segue for subservience to God. If you look to the second quote, this is from the prophet Micha. Here he says, has he not told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord demands of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk discreetly with your God? And these are directives not for women, but for man and woman, that God wants discreetness or modesty. Here on the bottom of that, uh, this is on page three, on the bottom of the page, here you have Rashi's explanation to this quote from Micha. 
And Rashi says, he has told you, the Holy One, blessed be he, has told you what is good for you to do and to walk discreetly. Jonathan renders, walk discreetly in the fear of your God. Another explanation, and walk discreetly. The standard of flesh and blood is, blood is not like the standard of the Holy One, blessed be he. Page four. The standard of flesh and blood is, if one embarrasses his fellow and comes to placate him, the fellow says to him, I will not accept your apology until so-and-so and so-and-so before whom you disgrace me come. But the Holy One, blessed be he, desires only that man return to him between the two of them. So what Rashi's saying is that people want recognition. And God says, the way you recognize me is when there's nobody around, when it's intimate, when it's only me and you. Going back to the original story, Zusha, the hero of the story, said, I don't want other people to acknowledge my act of heroism. I want it be to be between me and God. And how do I retain that? Through putting myself in a negative light. A person that is in the limelight, let's take, for example, the rabbi of a synagogue. He's standing in front of everybody and he's praying. Let's say he's praying the Amidah. And he's swaying back and forth, and everybody's watching him. And he's praying with a lot of fervor. And then he comes home, and he does the Shema before going to sleep. Well, how is he going to do that Shema? Is he going to say that Shema with the same fervor as he did when he was davening the Amidah before his whole congregation? Because if he doesn't, then what becomes apparent is that part of his motivation in praying with fervor before his congregation was the image that he would be projecting onto other people. I want to be perceived as somebody who is, uh, takes my spirituality very seriously, who's devoted to God, who's cleaving to God. And when I'm by myself, then I kind of rip right through it. Or I'm a teacher and I give lectures often and sometimes I could see when I'm speaking an audience may look at me and say, wow, you know, she's a role model. And then I go home and I have to deal with my kids. Oh, my kids, they have no, uh, they don't put me on any pedestal. And I have to see, can I deal with them with patience and not be angry? And nobody will know. If I get angry at them, nobody will know except, except uh, my children. But it's there, in, my own, in the privacy of my own house, there's the test, which is the test of how much do I respect a human being, this human being my, being my child? How much do I believe in God's directive to refrain from anger? And that's where I feel is the true litmus test of my devotion to God. So the public domain is a place where we have a tendency to project an image, whereas in the private domain, we're more likely to show our true colors. Let me give you another example. Um, Abraham and Isaac, when they reach the high point of their moral life, or the highest, the pinnacle of their act of heroism, was when Abraham agreed to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. Now, this was done with nobody around. In fact, Abraham told the people that had come with him, the two lads, stay right here 
and myself, me and the lad, me and my son, we will go up to the mountain. You stay here. Now, ultimately, Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son. We know that God came and said, it's okay. But this was the ultimate act of heroism. Nobody was there. And compare this to a lot of Greek mythology where her acts of heroism are done in front of a lot of people where everybody sees my devotion to God. But again, there the question is, is it done re truly for God or is part of my motivation for other people? In the temple, one of the holiest experiences in the temple, in the high holy temple in Jerusalem during... Um, during the, uh, the, the golden age of the Jewish people in the land of Israel was when the high holy priest would go into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. This room was only accessible on one day a year, one day of the year Yom Kippur, for one person who was the Kohen Gadol, the high holy priest. And when he went inside, nobody was around. You would think that everybody would want to see how intensely he prayed but nobody was allowed to be there because true prayer is an expression of between myself and God. Okay, so here is just the contrast between the values that Western society projects upon us. The more exposure means the more value and the value system of Torah, which is that things are private, are things that are most tender and most valued by God. I want you to look with me now to another quote about modesty and this time is going to be related directly toward to, uh, for women okay on page six this is uh, from Psalms and here King David says kol kevuda bat melech pinima mimishpitzot zahav lavusha all the honor awaits the king's daughter who is within so, kivuda bat melech pinima. The honor, the honor, or the dignity, the glory is for the woman who is within. Or another way of reading that is bat melech pinima is the inwardness of the daughter. So, the glory of the king's daughter is her inwardness, her ability to be inward. So, here King David is saying not only does modesty prevent egocentrism but modesty leads to dignity now this is something that's perhaps counterintuitive because advertising we know is very much based on the exposure especially exposure of a woman's body a woman's body is used to advertise things that have nothing to do with women like cars and um, pharmaceutical products but it's the attraction and the allure of a woman's body that seems to um, pull in the readers, draw in the readers. So here we're saying that a woman's glory is her inwardness, but yet advertisers don't seem to think so. They think that a woman's glory is her exposure and her, her, her ability to be provocative. There is the sense that there is a dignity that comes from not being exposed. And I'll give you a case in point. There's a difference be between the way people would dress when they go to receive an Oscar award 
and the way they would go, the way they dress when they would go to receive a Nobel Peace Prize. And if someone would go up to receive a Nobel Peace Prize, uh, wearing the same outfit that they would wear to an Oscar award, people would think, mm, maybe she's at the wrong event. Maybe he's at the wrong event. This is not a place where we're parading our body. This is a, an event where we're parading our intellect, our achievements, our contribution to society. Or perhaps there's a difference between the way a person would dress when they were going to a job interview I mean, and the way they were dressed when they were going to a club, unless they were interviewing to work at the club. But when I'm going to project my capabilities, my integrity, it's just common sense that I'm going to cover my body. Because the body seems to be a distraction. And covering the body projects dignity, projects a sense of capability and intelligence. It may not be true. The person who's dressed provocatively may be much more intelligent than the person who's all covered up. But that's just kind of the social messages that we have. And, and this is rooted very deeply in our soul's consciousness. Another example would be a child. A young child who's not developed yet as a person would not feel self-conscious exposing their body certainly a baby, a child who's two and three. But when my daughter, who's turning six next week, when she runs around naked, if she runs out of her room and she's not dressed, I say, Hannah, go, go, in, you know, go into your room. And she already feels a sense of consciousness about her body and certainly somebody that's older. So as the intelligence and maturity progresses, there's more of a sense of I need to cover my body because that shows, that's an indication of my maturity. So again, on one hand, you have the push to expose a woman's body because there's a certain magnetism that comes in handy, especially for advertising. It's a power that women have. On the other hand, covering the body creates and projects a sense of dignity. So for a lot of women, they don't know which way to go, which image do I want to project? Which image am I sacrificing? If I dress modesty, I don't have the power of attraction and allure. And if I dress provocatively, then maybe I'm giving off the image that I'm all about body and I'm not a dignified human being. So I want to look at the very first time in the Torah that clothing and modesty is mentioned. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. God tells them one thing, don't eat from this forbidden fruit, from Eitz the tree of knowledge of good and bad. And this was a tremendous test for them. And as we know, Eve, Chava, succumbed and did take a bite out of this forbidden fruit, which, by the way, wasn't an apple. There's many, there's different opinions in the commentaries as to what it, what it was, a fig or a grape. Wheat, even, is one opinion, but which would be, then wouldn't be a fruit, but uh, it wasn't an apple, according to most opinions. So they ate, and there was this just cosmic shift in consciousness. They ate it, and they became a different person. We talk today about food that changes your consciousness and gives you clarity or lack of clarity. Well, this was the ultimate and extreme example of food just changing the way they felt and their perspective on life. 
and manipulating their brain, so to speak, so that life looked different af differently afterwards. So here you have in uh, the verse, the climax of this story on page five, the woman saw that the fruit was good, that the tree was good, and it was pleasurable for her eyes. And it was desirable to make one wise. She knew, the snake told her, that by eating this, she would think differently. She would gain wisdom. And in fact, she did gain wisdom. I'm sorry. She took the fruit and she ate it. Vatitain gam leisha ima, she gave it to her husband as well. Vayochal and they ate. What is going to happen next? The next verse, Vatipakachna ene shnehem, and all of a sudden both of their eyes were opened. Vayedu ki arumim heim, and they realized that they were naked. Vayispuru ale teena, and they sewed fig leaves, vayasulahem chagoros, and they made themselves girdles. What was the one shift that happened after they ate? The one remnant, the one indicator that they had changed, they knew that they were naked. Now, not only were they naked beforehand and not self-conscious, but the Medrash tells us that the whole instigator behind Chava eating from this tree, eating from the forbidden fruit, was the snake. And what was the snake's agenda? Well, the Medrash tells us that Adam and Eve, hours after they were created, were engaged in marital relations, out in the open, publicly. They didn't even have the human decency, the common decency to like go behind a bush. Nope. They were created and they were engaged in a sexual relationship just out in the open. Well, the commentaries explain that they viewed their reproductive organs in the same way that you and I view our mouths. It's something that God gave us. And obviously God gave us this part of our body to utilize. And just like there's the drive to eat, there's a sexual drive. And all part of existing, and there's nothing to be embarrassed about. In fact, everything that they did, eating and their intimate relationship, was all done for God. To procreate, to, uh, to live as a human being and have all their needs met so that they could serve God. Everything was done l'shem shamayim, and therefore they didn't see any need. They didn't even have the the urge or the sense of being modest, of protecting themselves. Now all, and therefore the snake saw them being intimate together, and the Medrash says that the snake was jealous. He was envious, and he lusted after Eve, Chava, and that's why he tried to kind of mess them up and shift the whole dynamic. Ultimately, he wanted Adam to die and Chava to become less of a superhuman being and more of an animalistic human being and therefore he could ha and then and then have a relationship with her this was his scheme but after and and after they ate from the fruit all of the sudden they became self-conscious of their body 
It doesn't say after they ate from the fruit, they saw that the world looked gray and they weren't so happy or they saw the negativity within each other. No. The one shift that the Torah mentions is that they were conscious of the fact that they were naked. Just like before they ate from the fruit, they were completely selfless, even sexual relationships were done for completely selfless reasons just because they were doing the will of God. The shift was exactly the opposite. They became selfish. They obtained an ego. All of a sudden they understood that we're not just extensions of God, robots doing God's will with no personal agenda. I'm an independent person. I'm Adam. I'm Eve. I'm Rachel. I have my own agenda. I'm going to try to make my agenda in sync with what God wants some of the time. But I have my own pleasure and my own uh, I, I strive for achievement and power in my own way and especially when it comes to something like a sexual desire there is a lot of personal pleasure involved and therefore it needs to be protected and that protection came first and foremost by way of clothing so now I can't just have immediate access to you because I may abuse that access and this is something that they knew intuitively immediately after they felt that sense of selfhood ego independence they knew that there needed to be protection when a child understands that they are independent they become self-conscious they know they need to cover up they know they need to protect themselves and be protected and clothing serves as that function after they covered themselves up with the fig leaves, God made them a garment made out of skin. They were able to wear that. That was the first clothing that, that the Torah mentions. Now, I want to share with you something that was presented by the Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, the first Chabad Rebbe, our Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson's great-great-grandfather, seven generations. Um, he was born in 1745 in white Russia and he wrote a lot of works of uh, Hasidut, Jewish mysticism. And he explores this issue of the kasnos or, the clothing that was made of skin that God made for Adam and Eve. And <clears throat> he discusses the role of the body in connection to the soul. What is the relationship between the body and the soul? And he says that before they ate from the forbidden fruit, it was much like a light that's surrounded by glass. Look at the lights here. Well, we have, there's a beautiful encasing for this, uh, for the light in these chandeliers. But imagine that it was just a plain, transparent glass with no color, and the light was penetrating through that glass. So that was like the relation between the body and soul. The soul was able to shine freely through the body. They viewed their bodies purely as a vehicle to carry out the will of the soul. And after they ate and they, they, uh, they graduated their, their journey of eating with an ego, all of a sudden they had an ego, now that body was no longer able to project 
the soul, the light of the soul, clearly. In fact, it obscured the light of the soul. Now it's about me and my agenda and not so much about bringing the light of God into the world. So what does God do to rectify? Well, you can't go back to the way it was before. There's no reversing. And in fact, it wasn't even God's intention to go back to the pre-garden, to the Garden of Eden era, the pre-eating of the forbidden fruit era. That wasn't even the ideal. Now, what God did was give them clothing. And the clothing, Rabbi Schneir Zalman says, is like a thin layer of silver that backs a glass plane, creating a mirror. So yes, it's not glass, it's not transparent, but it's something else that's valuable. It's a mirror. And when you look at a mirror, I could see a reflection of what I put in. And not only can I see a reflection of what I'm projecting, if it's myself, let's say, I could even see what's in back of me. Something that I would not be able to see if I was looking through glass. If I was looking through glass, I'd be able to see couple miles straight ahead. If I'm looking at a mirror, I see myself, but I also see what's in back of me. What does that mean? Well, the glass represents Kiddushah, pure and unadulterated holiness. And that was the human body in the Garden of Eden, pre-eating of the forbidden fruit. It was pure holiness, no ego, no, no, ego, no agenda. Afterwards, the body was demoted to the level of klipat noga. Now the energy that was vitalizing the body and the animal soul was klipat noga, which is a neutral energetic force. It could be used to serve God, and it could be used for selfish purposes, much like food. Food is neutral. You could use it for Shabbat, you could use it to host guests, and then that food becomes holy, or you could use the food to stuff yourself and... Um, overindulge. Well, the body could go either way. How then does one utilize the body to its fullest and transform that klipat noga, that neutral energetic force, into something holy again through backing it with the plate of silver, silver or as the Rabbi Schneir Zalman says in this case, the kasnos or. That clothing served to create a mirror-like effect on the body. So, you could look at it like this. After they ate, the body covered the soul, but the clothing covered the body and revealed the soul again. But not only was the soul able to shine now in a way of a transparent light that goes straight through the glass, which is called in Kabbalistic terms, or yashar, but now the light of the soul shined in a way of or choser, a reflective light. And in the reflective light, yes, it's not pure, unadulterated, exactly looking at the image as it was in its original source. I look through a mirror, I see that flower outside as it is in its original form. But in a mirror, I see a reflection of the image. So. Through my body now, I can project my soul in a very personal way. Yes, I have an ego. Yes, I have my own personal space, my own agenda. But I could still reflect my soul. And this type of reflection and projection 
of a soul-based living is going to be my own creation based on my own intelligence, my own ego, my own investment and creativity is going to be used to project my soul and to live a God-centered life. And this was done through the clothing. So to come back to the question that I posed before, on one hand you have a woman's body being a, creating a certain power and magnetism. And on the other hand we're saying that covering that body projects dignity. So how do you fuse the two? Which one do we sacrifice? In fact, it's not only that a woman's body, uh, it's not only the, the magnetism or the seduction, but there's also a tremendous power that God invested in a woman's body to be able to nurture a child for nine months, develop that child, house that child, kangaroo in her womb, and then after the child is born to create the most nutritious food, milk for that child, liquid gold, as many doctors call it, that adjusts to the child's needs with vitamins and antibodies. All of this is produced by a woman's body. There's tremendous power there. But that power can become very egocentric, can become about me, can become a means to obscure sensitivity and spirituality from my life and could also be abused by other people. And so the clothing, that layer of silver behind the glass, is a way of appropriately challenging, uh, channeling all of the power within a woman's body to be able to use all of her gifts in the appropriate time, in the appropriate place, not sacrificing any of that, any of her gifts, any of the power, any of the allure, but utilizing it in the most constructive and holy way. I want to read a quote from Rabbi Manus Friedman in his book, Does Anybody Blush Anymore? He writes like this, Modesty may, be, may appear to be in conflict with surrender, with openness and receptiveness. When you're modest, it's always, you can't do this and you can't do that. It seems stifling and, inhi in, in, and inhibiting, not intimate. In truth, however, modesty and surrender are not in conflict. Modesty means I am available here, I am not open now, but in the right time, in the right place, in a clearly defined relationship, I can surrender totally. And then you do. In fact, it's the only way to surrender, the only way to be intimate, because the openness is focused and not scattered. I wanna share with you a story, a true story that happens in a ghetto in Nazi-occupied Poland. There was a girl who used to go and scout out food for her family. Um, she would sneak out of the ghetto and see what she could do to bring home food, as many children did in the time of the Holocaust. And she would, um, <clears throat> the way she would do it was she had a, a nice Aryan look and she would 
pretend that she wasn't Jewish, and she was just walking the streets, and she would buy some food and then sneak her way back into the ghetto. Well, she came from a very Torah-observant household, and her parents always told her how important it is to be modest and to dress modestly in a beautiful, dignified way, but in a modest way. On the other hand, she was finding Gentile, and she was trying to... Um, to pretend that she wasn't Jewish as she was going to look for food. So she was on her way out and she was having this debate inside of her head. Should I open my, the buttons of my blouse so that I look more Gentile or should I not? On one hand, this is a matter of life and death. I don't want to be caught as a Jewess because then my life is at risk. On the other hand, uh, my parents always told me that I should button the buttons of my blouse. I shouldn't, I shouldn't open them. And I don't want to go against what they said. I don't feel comfortable. And kind of going back and forth in her mind, having this debate. And she, um, she decided that she was going to close the buttons of her blouse. That was the decision that she came to. And on her way... She, on her way to purchase some food, she got, she got stopped by an SS guard and they asked her, you know, for her ID and she had to tell them she didn't have her ID and spoke a beautiful German to, or, or Polish, because she was from Poland, to pretend that she was not a Jewish woman and she was able to convince them that she wasn't Jewish and she, she, uh, she was able, they let her go and she got the food that she needed and smuggled, it, smuggled herself and the food back into the ghetto. And when she came back, she was telling her mother, her parents, the story, how she was almost caught and how, she was, how frightened she was when she was being questioned by this guard. And she also shared how she was trying to look more Gentile by considering trying to look more Gentile by opening her blouse, but ultimately she closed her blouse. And as she said that, her mother turned to her and said, I am so happy that you didn't open your blouse because you didn't, you forgot, but you're wearing a necklace and the pendant on that necklace is a Jewish star. If you'd have opened the blouse and been stopped by a guard, they would have known right away that you were Jewish. So I think to me the message from that story is sometimes we're looking to project something, we're looking to obtain something, and we may not be getting that. We may be getting something opposite. In this case, she was trying to look more Gentile, but in fact, she was looking more Jewish. And I think one of the challenges that women have today in, in our society is that since they're bombarded with this message that the more exposure means the more value, they think that in order to present myself as being valuable, I need to be exposed and overexposed. But it ends up perhaps working many times to their detriment, especially for young girls, for teenagers, that in a sense it cheapens other people's view of them. The body obscures the soul and they come off as looking less intelligent than they really are, less capable, less soul-oriented than they really are, in an attempt to gain people's favor, sometimes ends up losing people's positive opinion of them. And the Torah is here to protect women, 
to make sure that their dignity is always upheld by other people and even in their own esteem to cultivate that sense of feminine dignity and utilizing the power of allure that God put into the very fabric of a woman's physique and body in a constructive and holy way, elevating that klipat noga, the neutral energy that empowers the body to become kedushah, to become holiness. And Kabbalah teaches that God has even more pleasure from the transformation of the neutral into something holy than from something that was originally holy, selfless, and pure. So, um, I uh, just my my hope for myself and for everybody here that we're able to find the channel, the right way of projecting that image of both body and soul working in synchrony to live a meaningful life and inspire others to do the same.